Our scripture reading uh, this uh, morning comes, you can find it on page 7 in your order of worship, comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, and then Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 to 24. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 6, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Demire, and thank you to all the Redeemer musicians. Really wonderful job, like always, tonight, or this morning, and also this past Monday, Thursday. We're really blessed by wonderful music here. This is Easter Sunday, and this is also the day that we are going to end our sermon series going through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We began the sermon series this past September, and today will be the final morning. And so at the very end of this letter, as you just heard read from chapter 6, you hear a very typical ending to a Pauline letter. There's a few personal remarks it talks about Tychicus, who is the man who is going to hand deliver this letter. This is, of course, a very big responsibility for Tychicus to do this 100-mile journey to drop off the letter in Ephesus. There's no, there's no emailing letters. There's no postal service. And so it really it depended on a man or a woman actually hand delivering a letter. That's Tychicus's job. He does it. The one blessing is that since he has traveled all this way to deliver a letter, we see that he is able to stick around for a little bit. And provide some more personal updates. You see in verses 23 and 24 that Paul is going to end this letter in the same way that he started the letter all the way back in September from chapter 1. That this letter is going to end grace and peace to you. This is the greeting that we give to you every morning at the beginning of the service. Now it's always a little difficult to know how to apply the, the beginnings and the endings of these letters. Just personal remarks sort of a, a, a prolonged goodbye, I love you. What does it all mean? We're not going to go into that in too much detail uh, this morning. I will just say these endings are, they're encouraging at least to me because it reminds me that this is a real letter. It's a real letter written by a real man named Paul, written to a real church in Ephesus, a church that's full of real people like you and I. This is a genuine letter, and this reminds us of that. Now again, there's much more that we could say on this ending, but this is Easter Sunday. This is the Sunday of all Sundays, and so we are not going to end Paul's letter to Ephesians in chapter 6, but we're actually rather going to go back into the heart of the letter and go back to Ephesians chapter 3 to close out this letter on this Easter Sunday. You might recall, if you were paying very close attention, back when we were preaching through Ephesians chapter 3 in the fall, we intentionally skipped over verses 20 and 21 because we wanted to come back to those verses today. 
on Easter Sunday. And so here we are, closing out the first half of Ephesians, the first three chapters. Paul ends all the great theological truths of the gospel with this soaring doxology. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So that section is where we are going to spend our time this morning. And we are going to build up to it by doing an overview of the first three chapters. But Paul here is saying... All glory to God, to the God who is strong, to the God who is not weak, but is able, the God who is able to do more than we can ask or imagine, to that God whose power is at work within us. So God's not just working out there, but he's actually working in us. When you understand all that Paul has said in the first three chapters, you are going to be led to this type of praise. This is from John McKay. He is the president, the former president of Princeton Theological Seminary. After he studied Ephesians, he wrote, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes towards other people. I love God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. So close out Ephesians this morning. That's the goal for you, that the entire way in which you see the world, how you understand God, how you understand your relationship to God, how you see people and understand relationships because of the centrality of Jesus Christ in all things. When he stands at the center, when you get it, you begin to see all of life differently. That's the goal for this morning. So here is what we are going to do. We are going to do a very quick overview of the first three chapters of Ephesians that are leading up to this final doxology that closes out Ephesians chapter 3 and is going to close out Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus for us this morning. So you will need your Bibles open so you can take out your phone and open your Bible app. Even better, you can take out the blue Bibles that are in the pews in front of you and turn to page 976, which is where you'll find Ephesians. I encourage you to follow along. Anything that I say needs to be found in the Word of God or else it is absolutely worth it. So check me as I am going. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and look with me at verse 3. So this is the beginning of our overview of the first three chapters. In verse 3, we see that we are blessed in Christ. We see here that Christ came from the heavenly places. So before the life of Christ as a man, Christ lived in the heavenly places. That's his home. That's his kingdom. And in that kingdom, he is in the fellowship of intertrinitarian love. That's what it means that Jesus w- w- was blessed. 
That's all there is in the heavenly realm. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternal in age, together forever, forever in mutual adoration. That mutual adoration is what creates the dynamic of love. The dynamic of love in the Trinity is both other-centered in that each person of the Trinity is still looking at God. So this love that exists in the Trinity is both other-centered and God-centered, which is the purest definition of love, which is the blessing of heaven. C.S. Lewis writes, All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. See, love requires two parties. And in the Trinity, there's more than two. There's actually three. So it's not just that God has the ability to love or that God can love, but because of the Trinity, because of this blessing, God himself is love. That's the blessing that Jesus Christ lived in. He was blessed. Now we might use that phrase that a man or a woman is blessed, and if we would say that phrase, we might mean something like, well, that that woman's really blessed because she is a great job, or she has great health, a great family. Well, those are all blessings, but those are just a shadow of the truest blessing, which is this Trinitarian fellowship in which Jesus exists in. The substance of the blessing in the heavenly home is the Trinitarian love that establishes it. So what we see here in Ephesians 1-3, it's, it's not so much that Jesus is blessed because he comes from heaven, It's more that heaven is blessed because Jesus is there. In the Trinity is the blessing. So where the Trinity is, there is the blessing. So move on to verse 4. Even as he chose us in him. So this a number of times, but that phrase, in him, is the key to understanding Ephesians. It all comes down to our preposition. It is the preposition in. So in grammar, prepositions describe the relationship between two objects. So a computer sits on top of the table. The preposition is on. On describes how the computer and the table are touching. You might say the train went through the tunnel. The preposition is the word through. That The word through describes how the train is connected to the tunnel. So in life, there are only two possible prepositions that describe humanity's relationship to Jesus. First, there are those that are out of Christ. That is, they're they're distant from him. They're not connected. They're strangers. They're foreigners. Then there is the preposition that we see here in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That there are some that God has put in Christ. All of the gospel comes down to two letters. That short little preposition, in. That God has put you in Christ. The preposition is not close to Christ. It's not that you're near to Christ. It's not that you're leaning on Christ. It's not close but no cigar. No, the preposition 
that Paul is using is that God has put you in Christ. You live in Jesus. God put you there. And notice, the one who takes initiative in doing this is God. You have not put yourself in Christ. No, God in his sovereign love has put you in Jesus. I recognize that the word is chose. There's all sorts of existential alarms are going off for what that means and the implications. I get all that. We're not going to talk so much about that this morning. But at least for right now, Paul is writing this to make you happy, to give you assurance, to give you comfort. That you live in Jesus. And therefore, if you live in Jesus, all the blessings that are due to Jesus are now accessible to you. So if you are in Christ, you live in a grace bubble. You are surrounded. If, if Christ is wrapped around you, if you're in him and you're wrapped in his clothing, then 100% of the time you are living in a state of grace, a bubble of grace. Now this means that you are always going to be blessed, that God is always working things for your good. Now it's easy to say that when you get a job promotion, or things are going well, or you're experiencing just uh, things that you really desire, it seems like you're getting all the breaks in life, you would say, oh yes, that's, that's gracious. But if you are in Christ, it would be unjust of God to punish you. Therefore, even in the hard moments of life, God is still graciously working. When you don't get the job promotion, when the budget is tight, when the scary medical diagnosis comes, if you live in Christ, you live in this bubble of grace, so that at all times and in all ways, God is sovereignly working for your good. Notice with me, what are some of the benefits for those that are in Christ? Verse 4, you are holy and blameless. Now existentially, you would say, well, that, that's not true. I have fallen short a number of times. I have probably fallen short even since we just confessed our sin to God. But if you live in Christ, God does not see your sin, but he sees Christ who covers you. Therefore, in God's eyes, you are holy and blameless. Verse 5, if you're in Christ, you have been adopted as a son, as a daughter into the family of God. Verse 7, if you're in Christ, you are redeemed, you are forgiven. Verse 8, the riches of God's grace are lavished upon us. Go back to Matthew chapter 3, at the baptism of Jesus, the heavens part, the dove descends. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If you are in Christ, the same parting of the heavens, God looks at you and says, this is my son, this is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. It's a lavished grace. Verse 9, for those that are in him, we have obtained an inheritance. See, all the blessings of the heavenly realm exist because of Jesus. And here Paul is saying that if you live in Jesus, if you have been placed in him, everything that is due to Jesus Christ, you now have complete access to. So Paul closes out this first section. <clears throat> Takes a little bit of a deep breath. And the preacher will take a drink of water. And we'll go to verse 15. And this is where Paul begins to pray for those that are reading and listening to this letter. And in verse 15, Paul is going to pray that we understand the gospel in a much deeper way and that we would understand all that we have access to. 
Remember, Paul was writing this letter to a church. He's writing this letter to people like us. So this isn't so much a letter about how to become a Christian. He's writing this to Christians. And he is praying that these Christians would fully understand all that they have in Christ. You see, it's possible to be a Christian and still not understand the depths of God's grace and love for your life. There's a very well-known study. It was conducted maybe over 20 years ago. It was by Colin Smith and researchers from the National Study of Youth and Religion. These interviewers were working with teenagers, and they wanted to figure out what teenagers in the church, how did they understand faith? Now, these teenagers are all grown up now, and this is roughly my generation. So if you're my generation and younger, this is the generation that you were raised in, and this is a large part of our church here this morning. And the researchers summarized their points in in five different bullets. And so these teenagers who are now grown up and are roughly my age, these people believe in a God that exists, a God who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. These teenagers also believe that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. These teenagers believe that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, they believe that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, these people believe that good people go to heaven when they die. So these researchers were findings of these teenagers and, and they put this all together and they came up with what is now in their minds, considered the new American religion. And the title for this new American religion is Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. So God wants you to be moral, wants you to be a good person. God is there to be your cosmic therapist, and so you don't need him most of the time, but whenever you are going through a crisis, reach out to God and he will be your therapist. And finally, Deism. So most people my age and younger believe that there is a God or a force or a power or there's something out there, but he is not personable and he is not known. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. That is the new religion of America. And this new religion exists sadly because for years... This has been what churches have been teaching. There's been pastors behind pulpits that have been pumping that kind of teaching into their congregations. And all of that flies against what we see Paul writing here. The gospel is not just about morals, (coughs) but about life. It's not just about a cosmic therapist, but about the blessing of heaven. And the gospel is certainly not deism, but it's about being adopted into the family of God. Oprah, Bono, Jordan Peterson have no problem with the new American religion. They have no problem with moralistic, therapeutic deism. Those three people are absolutely fine with a vague God, a vague force that helps people become better, 
But what Paul is saying here is there's a life to be known. See, the difference here is the difference between knowing something about a figure in history and actually knowing a person. You likely know some things about George Washington. You know that he was our, our first president. You know about the battles. You know about his military victories. You know about the cherry tree. We, we read some things about George Washington in the history books, but we don't actually know George Washington. It's different, though, when I say I know my wife, Vanessa, personally. So I know some facts about George Washington, but I know Vanessa in a personal way. That is what is meant by knowing Jesus. It's the heart of Ephesians, that you would actually know him personally, live into this Christ that has come for you. I would assume, Easter morning, that there are some here that do not know Jesus personally. Maybe you know some things about him. Maybe you might even talk about Jesus like you would talk about George Washington. It's a good start, but the heart of the gospel and the heart of Ephesians is not just to know some facts, but to actually know a person. If that describes you, I would love to meet up this week for lunch or coffee. I know Pastor Demiron would say the same. We would love to share with you how you can know Jesus personally. And I recognize that there are others here this morning that already know Jesus personally. And what I want you to see is that Paul is praying for you. <clears throat> that you would know so much more of him. As C.S. Lewis would write in Narnia, further up and further in. Paul is beginning to pray here that the church in Ephesus would begin to understand the depth of all that they have in Christ. That their hearts would be enlightened to see the glory of Jesus, to see his value, to see his beauty, to see his power and worth. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm, I'm getting over a cold here, so bear with me. Verse 19. And here's where this will become an Easter sermon, a resurrection sermon. <clears throat> Jesus, the blessing of heaven, the second person of the Trinity. You see, Jesus is innocent and pure. That Jesus on Good Friday would hang on a cross. That Jesus Christ would become the man of sorrows. That Jesus was forsaken and smitten by God. We read elsewhere in the scriptures that cursed is the man who hangs on the tree. There are many people in the culture that say the death of Jesus is just a tragic injustice. Like you might hear in the news about a man that was convicted of a crime that he did not commit and now he has been set free because of forensics and DNA. Oh, something like that for Jesus. Poor Jesus. He didn't do this. Poor guy. So the gospel then just becomes a story of overcoming religious and government oppression. And now that's true in a sense. Excuse me. But it's just not the main reason for the gospel. It's not the full story. As Jesus hung on the cross and he cried out, it is finished. This means that the forever plan of God, the agreement of the Godhead, the Godhead of the blessing, the agreement that God would send his son Jesus to redeem a people... That is what is finished. The work of paying off the legal debt, the work of bearing our shame, 
the work of being the scapegoat that would carry the sin off into the desert, that work is now done. And so when we read that Jesus was smitten by God, it is not ultimately a tragic court system failure because we read it was the will of God to crush him. Jesus agreed to this. Jesus, the blessed man, he hung and died. He was laid in the tomb. The wages of sin is death. And so the one bearing the curse had to pay that wage. But here's the gospel that this blessed man, the man who defines the blessing of heaven itself, in his death paid that wage with such fullness and such finality that God had to raise him from the grave. Remember, God is just. Therefore, when Jesus bore the wage of sin, God had to punish him on the cross. The justice of God demanded that Jesus die. But because Jesus defeated sin and death, there is no longer a debt to be paid. Therefore, the justice of God demanded that Jesus would rise from the grave. So on Easter morning, as the world still slept, thinking that another false savior had come and gone, Jesus had paid the debt. And so he rose. The resurrection is the receipt that the debt has been paid. So in light of that, look with me at verses 19 through 20. This is what Paul is praying for. The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So that immeasurable greatness of power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave on Easter morning, that same resurrection power is now aimed at you if you are in Christ. So anyone who understands the gospel as simply moralistic, therapeutic deism has robbed Jesus of his resurrection power. As if Jesus only died to be a religious example to be followed or a tragic martyr to be pitied. No, the gospel is so much better. He conquered death. He rose from the grave. And all that have died with him will also rise with him. So do not rob the gospel of its power. Let's keep moving on. Chapters 2 and 3 we'll do very quickly. In chapters 2 and 3 what we see is that Jesus did not come just to resurrect a few people. But he came to resurrect people from all over the world. The big division the church of Ephesus was between Jewish people and Gentile people. The Jewish people were, were, were very haughty. They were the religious elites, so they would look down on the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the lawless people, and so they, they sort of say, well, those, those Jewish people, they're hypocritical, they're elites, we don't like them. But Ephesians 2 and 3 says that that wall has come down, and there is one new humanity in Jesus. When you come to Jesus, if you are in Christ, that means you are leaving all secondary identities behind. And so there is a new family. It's not primarily Jewish. It's not primarily uh, Gentile. It's just Christian in Christ. Same is true here. When you come to Jesus, you leave secondary identities behind. 
So black people and Asian people and white people and old people and young people and rich and poor and communist and socialist and fascist and capitalist and blue collar and white collar, all of those secondary identities are left behind when you come to Jesus and you're welcomed into the mystical family of God, which is called the church. The church is this global family that transcends all nations and cultures and generations. The movement of the church, because of the power of the resurrection, is a movement that is still very much so at work today. Hear stories of what God is doing around the world through missionaries. You'd be very encouraged. I was very struck by this fact. For all the faults of the church, about the church globally, the church is by far the most unified and also diverse group of people in the history of the world. <clears throat> and that's because people live in Jesus, and Jesus has the power to overcome all enemies. So that's Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 in a nutshell. And that leads to one final prayer in chapter 3, verse 14. Again, this is a second prayer where Paul is again going to pray that we would understand the depths of God's love for us. What we see is that God's love for us is as deep as it is wide, as it is broad. And all that, in three chapters, I think that took us four months to actually preach through. But, that's a quick summary, and you can understand why John McKay, the former seminary president, wrote that this letter caused him to see all of his life in a new way. You certainly understand why a number of people, including John Calvin, would say that the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus is his favorite letter. Now, the Apostle Paul, just, he's, just, he's just human. And what happens for humans is when you are struck by great beauty, you're always led to praise. So that's verses 20 and 21. After seeing the beauty of all that has happened in Jesus Christ in these first three chapters, Paul ends with a doxology. Doxology, the word doxa is the Greek word for praise. Logos is the word for word. So doxology is a word of praise, a final word of praise for us to close Easter Sunday and Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Go with me. Phrase by phrase. The doxology starts now to him. After all that we have seen in the gospel about the blessing of heaven, that Jesus left the blessing of heaven, that God was the initiator in our salvation, that Jesus lived, bled, died, was raised, resurrected, now, to that God, who has orchestrated all of that, be praise. To the Father, who speaks all things out of nothing by the will of his power, including our very own salvation. To the Son, to Jesus, who bled in our place. To the Spirit, who lives and applies all that the Father wills and accomplishes to our lives. To this God, be praise. To this God, next phrase, who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine. I can imagine some big things. 
you can imagine some big things. Whatever you can imagine God doing in the world, what we see here is that God is able to do so much more. God's able. He's not weak. He's not limited. He's not finite. He is certainly not the God of deism that just winds a clock and then stands off at a distance and lets the world unwind. No, God is able to defeat all the enemies of this world, including the great enemy of death itself. According to his power that is at work within us. The power of the gospel, it's not just out there. It's not just in the world. But Paul is saying the power of the gospel, the power of the resurrection itself is in you. You have access to it. You have complete access to resurrection power because you live in Jesus Christ. Now this is of course not on account of anything that you've done, but on account of what Jesus alone has done. Because he's done it, and because of that preposition in, you have complete access to it. So to him, to this God who has done all of this, be glory. Be all glory to God. No glory to the self. No glory to the church. No glory to a religious teacher or to a certain ethnic group or to a philosophical system. To all glory, may it go to God alone. See, all that glory comes from the church, in the church. May the church, which is full of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, every ethne in the world, may the church triumphant, by the church triumphant, we mean those that are currently in the presence of Jesus Christ post-death. The church triumphant and also the church militant. That's us here that are still pilgrims in life. Triumphant, militant, all ethne around the world too. May all in the church give God glory. It says in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. From the very beginning of time when God had a people, may all God's people praise God. So beginning with Adam and Eve, through the wilderness years with Moses and under King David, during the early period of the church with Paul and during the dark ages and the Protestant Reformation and missionary expansion in the 1800s, all the way up into the year 2023. And for however long God allows this present age to last. May all generations, all people forever and ever bring praise to God for all that he has done in his son. And then the benediction ends, and all God's people with Paul say, amen. Now, Redeemer, that was really weak. No, I, I get that we're, we're Presbyterian, and uh, we, we don't like saying anything in a sermon, but we are, we are Presbyterians in Motown, so we have at least 1% soul in us. So I'm going to say that again, and I'm going to hear a real Easter amen. For all that God has done in Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, the one who came and was smitten by God to Jesus Christ who hung on the cross, Jesus who left the glory of heaven so that he might place us in him so that we have full access to all that the Son accomplished. To this triune God, give all glory. And all God's people here this morning say, amen. Much better. Friends, the gospel that we have heard about in Ephesians is not a ticket to an easy life. There's nothing here in Ephesians about how to avoid suffering. 
There's nothing here about health and wealth, that God's just going to give us the desires of our hearts at all times. Think of the Jesus, the Christ that we are united to. He was a man of sorrows. He was a man of suffering. If we are united to him, we are united in his suffering. So that's not the power that is promised to us in Ephesians. What is promised is that every spiritual blessing that is granted to Christ is true for us as well if we are in him. His riches are our riches. His life is our life. And on this Easter morning, his resurrection from the grave is our resurrection as well. To God alone be glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do give you thanks for all that your son has accomplished on our behalf. We give you thanks for Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, this letter that we have been in for nine months now. Thank you for all the different things that we have learned and talked about, ways that we have been challenged and refined, and for all the, the just good principles. But the, the best of all principles is what we see in Ephesians chapter 1, all that we have in the son. Father, I pray now, but Paul prayed for this church, to believers, to people that were already in church on Sunday morning. I pray that all of us would understand in much deeper and better and more profound ways all the ways that you have blessed us in your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.